the cross. As I was thinking about this Good Friday, I was struck by the nature of a very simple icon for us in our shared Christian faith. I mean, any time we as Christians see this very simple uh, picture, it conjures up many ideas, right? I mean, you think about just the symbolism captured in the cross. We see it and we think about things like love and forgiveness and hope. But these truths exist for a very fundamental reason, and it's that simple reality that this instrument, not just symbol, not just icon, but this instrument was an instrument of malice, cruelty, cruelty, hatred, and wrath. It is that we remember tonight. So with that, if you would pray with me to settle our hearts. Jesus, we come before you tonight with the desire to reflect on that which you have done so graciously for us. And I pray that as we enter this, and it's a very solemn time, I mean, this is not something where we come lightly or uh, we don't treat it as maybe any other message that we listen to. We know that in a lot of ways, this uh, is um, the center point of all the animosity between us and you and all of the reconciliation brought forth from you to us. And so I pray that you would capture our attention for just a moment here, that you would draw us into realizing the magnitude of this story. And from that, we would be all the more grateful for that which you have done. So we look to you, we love you, we seek you, and we thank you in your awesome name. Amen. Good Friday is always a challenge for me um, because of the fact that it's solemn, and I don't always like solemn. I like to have fun, I like to joke, I like to do these kinds of things, but tonight is different. And the weight and the magnitude of what Good Friday about is about is really different for us. Because sometimes what we do is we we run from wanting to look too deeply into awkward things or painful things. We don't like to, to look at suffering necessarily. But that is so much what the cross is about and we don't want to lose that. That the cross is this intersection of a conflict that we have to take some ownership of and we have to realize that this is a very special and intense idea. The cross. Because it's really in the cross that you see the blind rage of humanity against God. Blind rage. And it's in the cross that you see the full wrath of God against humanity. So humanity is fighting God, and God is pouring wrath out on humanity and His justness, but it all intersects in this one person who is Jesus Christ. Jesus becomes that place where all humanity can put hatred. And God, to save humanity, can put all wrath. That's what makes the cross so profound to us as Christians. In fact, in a lot of ways, as much as it's the the icon of hope and love and forgiveness, really, if you look more deeply at the cross, it's an icon of sin. 
and how sin would be undone. In that sense, it's a mystery, it's a paradox, it's a tough thing for us to wrap our minds around. But if you look at all of the sins around the cross, you, you get a sense of it. There were a lot of sins that drove Jesus to the cross that day. There was pride. There was envy. There was jealousy. Betrayal. There was cruelty and false witness and greed. There was indifference. Cowardice. There was discontent. Expectations that weren't met. The religious and the irreligious alike were to blame. Whether it be the Jewish leaders, the political officials, the conscripted soldiers, the mass populace, whether it be the condemned terrorists, or even the abandoning disciples. They all joined in concert to murder God. It's a dark Friday, it's a painful Friday. It's a Friday of, of ownership. And the truth is that we can look at this 2,000 years later and we might think to ourselves, yeah, but I, if, if I was there and I watched for three years, I wouldn't do that. I would be different. I wouldn't fail like Peter. I wouldn't fail like the other ten. I wouldn't be a Judas. I wouldn't cry crucify in the crowd. But the reality is that day and that week exposes everything that is in us as humans. And we would have done the exact same thing. We would have responded in the same way. We would have joined the concert and we would have said, murder God. Maybe we would be ignorant. Maybe we'd just be caught up in the moment. Maybe there would be some expectation that wasn't met. Whatever it is, that's what we would do. And so it's in that scene that the Gospel of Mark says, Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, release for them Barabbas. So he frees the insurrectionist. He frees a murderer. Because the crowd wants the murderer free. They want the terrorist to go. And instead they say, we want Jesus dead. We want God dead. We want to be our own gods. Do our own things in our own ways. That's the real heart of humanity that's in play here. And so that's exactly what Pilate decides to do. But not before he tries to exert a little bit of pity on the part of Jesus. And it's for that that it says, he then scourged him. This is a very simple word, a very simple idea. All that it meant is that Pilate took a Roman soldier with a lead-tipped whip and he decided to simply beat Jesus with the whip, hoping that by the time it was over and his mangled body was shown to the crowd, perhaps the crowd would have second thoughts and say, never mind, let Jesus go also. I mean, that's Pilate's hope, in essence, by inflicting this damage. And it was very, very simple. It's just a simple whip. And if a soldier used it properly, it was designed to dig into the flesh and with a simple jerk of the wrist, dislodge and remove small pieces of the body. Designed to just basically cause us to pity the poor soul who is damaged by such a ravenous thing. So that's the goal, but 
to no avail. doesn't seem that the crowd in any way said, never mind, we feel bad, let him go. And so with that, it says he delivered him to be crucified. Crucified is an interesting thing, or crucifixion. It's where we get the word excruciating. In fact, excruciating, the idea behind it literally means from the cross. So this is the goal behind crucifixion. And, and it was an unbelievable science. It was invented by the Persians, eventually perfected by the Romans. And it was the ultimate terror apparatus to keep the peace. And it was brilliant in its execution. All you really wanted to do with the cross is figure out a way to bring the most shame, the most pain, and the most humiliation, slowing down the death so everybody would say, I never want that to be me. To where finally the person, after hours or days, would finally die because they just asphyxiate themselves. They can no longer breathe. I mean, again, brilliant device. If you're sadistic. And apparently the Romans were sadistic. And the crowds who loved to watch were equally sadistic. See, if you look at even how it was done in that day, I have a slide that shows just the different positions that they would place one in. And Jesus may have been in any one of these three positions. We don't really know for sure which one. But they were all the perfect balance. Where you would create this tug of war with the victim. Where the victim was had the sense of, of, of desire to stay alive. Self-preservation. So they keep lifting themselves up on those nails on their feet and their hands. So they could get a gulp of air. And trying to make sure they could stay alive. But their body just simply wanted to quit. So there was this constant tug of war. Hour after hour after hour. I want to die, but I can't die. My body won't quit unless it volunteers of its own accord to quit. So you're fighting the whole time. As this goes on, the body's in shock, dehydration sets in, there's searing pain. You have this uncontrollable incontinence that takes place. And all the while, the crowds love it. They love it. They jeer and they mock and they cry out. This is going to be his fate. Pilate knows exactly what's going to come down. Everybody knows what's going to come down. And so sadly, before the Sanhedrin council that first condemned Jesus, he, he told that council, he says, you know what? My future is going to be sitting at the right hand on a throne in glory. But the path to that throne will be a mock coronation of brutality and ridicule. It says in verse 16 of Mark 15, it says, Then the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, 600 men, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. Just a simple purple piece of cloth designed to, in a lot of ways, dress this sarcastic king. 
with a sarcastic robe. This is the robe of the king, King Jesus. And they laughed and they mocked and they thought it was just the funniest thing. And they said, well, it's not enough for a king to have a robe. He needs a crown. A king's crown. And so they gave him a crown of cruelty. They just simply wove thorns from outside of the building and thought that would suffice. And it's not so much that it has thorns. It's, you know, that's certainly going to be painful on Jesus and that will only invoke more laughter and mocking. But it's so crude for a king. And then in the Gospel of Matthew, it says, they found a reed and they put it in his hand as a king's scepter. Right? A scepter of his impotent rule. And so, men who don't even know Jesus have never really probably listened to the teaching of Jesus, have no dog in the fight as it relates to the religious system Jesus has entered into, nonetheless are happy to get on board with the cruelty. Why? Because the whole scene shows what we are. Whether we are religious or irreligious, it does not matter. This is the nature of man. And so they put the purple cloak on, they twisted together the crown of thorns, they put it on him. And then they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! This word hail is a very interesting word. It means to throw kisses. It's to cast the kisses. Hail, King of the Jews. Hail, King of the Jews. In the same way that Judas comes to kiss Jesus in mockery, so too these men hail him in mockery, kissing the king. And then finally, they use this phrase that is so bizarre because it's so right and so wrong. King of the Jews. And they think it's a joke. It's, It's ironic how right there they are. And yet how light years away they are at the same time. It's just cold and callous, hateful. Sinful. And then it says, then they were striking his head with the reed that was the scepter, and they were spitting on him, and they were kneeling down in homage to him. What's interesting about this is you notice that it doesn't say, and Jesus cried out, Jesus lashed out, Jesus got angry, Jesus gave him a dirty look, Jesus says, don't worry, I'm coming back and I'll get you. It doesn't say any of that. What we see in this scene with those simple words is that Jesus drinks with silent dignity the hemlock of our malice. He just takes it. He just drinks it. He just absorbs it. He's this pathetic, loathed king bespattered with spit and blood and hate just takes it. None of us would just take it. But he takes it. It says, then when they had mocked him, verse 20, they stripped him of the purple cloak and they put on his own clothes and they led him out to be crucified. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. 
Again, you see another irony here uh, in the passage. The one who could not carry his own cross is the one who carries a cross for all of us. And then there just happens to be this man that is coming by. And it seems that that day he took up the cross of Christ. And in another irony, he never put it down. He never put it down. He may have dropped the timber at some point there at Golgotha, but he never put down the cross. The evidence of that is that this man went home and he had two young boys, Alexander and Rufus, and he told them about this man, Jesus, that he had never met, was just going through the country, was forced to carry his cross, and this man changed everything. And 30 years later, Mark is writing a gospel to people who know Alexander and Rufus. These guys you know, his dad carried Jesus' cross. And the legacy continued. Profound scene, lots of irony, twists in the story. Well, it says they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. Now, some people look at this and they go, wow, a sudden act of compassion or mercy. Well, don't get lost in that. That's not at all what's going on. The idea of wine mixed with myrrh, it would definitely deaden the pain if you can manage to choke it down. The idea of mixing wine and myrrh would be a little bit like mixing cologne and alcohol. Just put half of each into a jar and say, here, drink this. If one could choke it down as they sputter, spit, and hopefully don't vomit in the process, yeah, you'll deaden the pain. It was just another joke. Uh, watch him drink this, and, and if he can actually hold it down as he coughs and hacks and can barely keep it down, if then, perhaps, you might not feel the pain. It's just hilarious to these people. And yet it says that he did not take it. See, Jesus wants to keep his wits. And, and not only that, Jesus has always already promised his disciples, I, I won't drink of the cup again until kingdom comes. And most importantly, on this particular day, there's only one cup that he's going to drink, and it's not going to be the cup of men. It's going to be a cup given to him by God. So for all of that, he says, you know what? I, I'm not going to drink. And then what comes next from the Gospel of Mark is very simple. Four words. And they crucified him. That's it. And they crucified him. There's no sensationalism in his description, right? I mean, you look at that and you go, man, where's the, the blood and gore? I mean, this is a horrible, tragic, violent death. And all Mark can come up with is, and they crucified him. But think about other words that don't need graphic description, really. You get it. Uh, if you see the word rape, or you see the word molestation, or pedophile. We don't need a graphic description of those words. We just know that's hideous. That's cruel. That's exploitive. 
Well, the people of Jesus' day and the readers of Mark, they've seen crucifixion. And so all they need is those four words. And they go, oh yeah, yeah, we understand that. We know what that is. We know what that looks like. And so, the Lord of glory, the mocked king, now stands impaled. Suspended in shame, wretched, cursed, despised. And it is there that it says the soldiers divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which should take the clothes. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And so imagine this scene. Just a few inches away from his hands are two terrorists. That's what they were. Not even robbers, they were terrorists. And a few inches from his feet are soldiers trusting fate to win the clothes of a dead man. In other words, this happened all the time. This is nothing new. People were crucified on a regular basis by the dozens, by the hundreds, sometimes by the thousands. And the soldiers would sit there callously and just cast some dice for who gets the stuff. This is a day like any other day, pretty much. That's the way it shapes up, with one bold exception. It says, those who passed by derided him. So here is Jesus, the King of glory, on the cross, and people are coming by, and they're just deriding him. You're going, I don't even know what deride means, but it's got to be bad. What it literally means is they blasphemed him. That's the word in its original language. They blasphemed him. The one charged with blasphemy is now blasphemed by people. Mocked, hated, spit upon, insulted, teased. That's what they're up to. See, because now this is humanity's chance for revenge. There was that Eden thing. We got busted. We were expelled. And now it's our chance to get back at God. So, they blaspheme the blasphemer. In fact, listen to what they do. It says they wag their heads, which is a very insulting mannerism in Judaism. It's like giving them the finger. So they just walk up, laugh, spit, give them the bird. It was funny. I mean, they'd even go like, ha, ha, ha. Well, I mean, that's what it says right there, right? Ah, that's what it says. Ha, ha, you're here. Mr. Fancy Pants says he's going to destroy the temple and raise it in three days. What are you going to do about that now? Can you really save? Come on, come down from that cross. Show us. Show us your skills. Show us your power. Show us your God-likeness. Show us. Even the most noble and dignified of the culture, the chief priests and the scribes began to mock him to one another. And they said, he saved others. He cannot save himself. No kidding. 
Because to save others, he must not save himself. He must not. Otherwise, all of it is for nothing. It says, even those who were crucified with him also reviled him. I mean, imagine that. Here you are, you're suffocating, you're suffering. You're, you have the exact same sentence as the guy next to you, and you make sure to muster up enough strength to mock him. Every type of human heart is exposed. Religious, irreligious, powerful, condemned, Jewish, Roman, doesn't matter. Every heart is exposed as being haters of God. And so here you see the wrath of God, or the wrath of man, rather, against God for hours. Pitiless, gleeful, evil. And this is usually what we identify with. We, we look at the story and go, that's the, the, the thing I see. That's the hideous part. But then it grows far worse. Far worse when you read this story because up to this point, it's just been the wrath of men. But now there is a shift and the wrath of men is supplanted by the wrath of God. And this was the dread that Jesus was praying about in the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, it says there in uh, verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. See, when Christ is there and everybody's having a good time at His expense, it's bad. But when the land grows dark, there is this sudden sense of, wow, something just really came in heavy. It is that moment that Jesus was praying about in Gethsemane where He's like, God, let this cup pass, where He is so unbelievably crushed in spirit He wants to die, where He is just trembling, sweating great drops like blood. This whole thing is going on in Him in Gethsemane because He knows the cup is coming. The Father will crush the Son. He will smite the shepherd, it says. And there in the sixth hour, that time comes. Jesus, who lived sinless, obeyed the law, perfect, now becomes the receptacle of sin. He becomes the bank by which all sin is deposited. All our sin. All of it. I mean, you think about that. All of it. In fact, to give an illustration, um, this backpack is, is kind of like us right here. And our sin is complicated. Uh, some of our sin is big and weighty. Some of it's small, not so weighty. Some of our sin is direct this to God. And others, it's just we didn't realize or we forgot or it wasn't that important or I just neglected. Some sin is hateful. Some sin is well-meaning, but it serves me. And so you, you think about that. Every sin being like a rock. Some sins, like this one, again, not huge. 
Maybe it's an attitude about a person that I have only internally. I don't voice that I think they're dumb or I resent them or whatever else. It's just a little thing. But that little thing has to go into the backpack of my life. It gets deposited into me forever. I'm guilty. It's in my backpack. Some sins are maybe a little bit bigger. Uh, maybe I, um, I'm unforgiving towards somebody. And every once in a while it pops out. That gets deposited. Maybe it's a little bit bigger and uh, I lied to my spouse because I didn't want to hurt them. Maybe I'm not amending the character that I should amend, uh, but, but I don't want to tell them because it's going to hurt them. So that, that gets deposited. Maybe some things are bigger. I start to gossip openly about people. I have an anger issue and I let anger escape quite a bit. I'm spiteful. I'm just not merciful. I'm a little cruel. That gets deposited. Some sins are bigger. I wish I could cheat on my spouse or uh, I took money from my company. Right? And that gets deposited. Some sins are even bigger than that. So you think about how many sins over the course of our lives goes into our backpack. It's a lot of things. Whether it be attitudes or affections or uh, actions that we commit, it all goes into the pack. And so every one of us has a pack. Every one of us has the weight of sin on our back as people. And the longer we live, the more weight we add to the pack. And we can't ditch this pack. It's going with us. It's in the account. There's no way to shake the pack. It's in the account. But then Jesus comes into the world and he faces the hate of men. And then God says, well, I need to pour wrath on sin for all that weight, all the weight in Matt Boswell's pack. I need to punish in my justice. And Jesus says, well, I'll take Matt's pack. On the cross, I'll take his weight. Now, I don't know how many of us are in this room, but we all would have packs that we would add to Jesus. So in this moment, when we read that darkness came over the land, and God's wrath is coming on Christ, what you have is Him taking all our packs, all the weight, all the rocks of our sin, all gathered together, and He is to suffer for that sin. Completely. Fully, totally. What's going on in this scene is my, my sin, my weight deserves eternal hell. Everything here must be punished with eternal hell. That's what the Bible teaches. And Jesus says, no, 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 wait. I, I will do it for you. Matt, I will take your pack. I will take your hell. I will suffer your eternal punishment on the cross. And not just you, but everybody who comes to me. I take their sin completely. 
And so every single second of the cross, every single moment, thousands of lives are being suffered for. Millions of offenses are being punished. See, that's what the cross is about. Countless eons and hours. It's a mystery. In physics, they say the greater the gravity, the slower the time. And I go, well, sin has a lot of gravity. Slowing the time. Allowing him to suffer much. And such a finite chunk for us. And I look at this and I go, as painful it is for the son to suffer, I have to imagine the father as well. I mean, imagine God the Father who loves His Son, sees the perfection of His Son, knows the obedience of His Son, is completely one with His Son, and now He is to pour out wrath on the one He loves. I mean, I thought about this with my son, Grayson. Uh, I, I, I tried to picture what it would be like if I was to sit down with Grayson, and he's very close with his oldest sister, Honor. They, they sometimes, like, bunk together just because they're close. Uh, just at home, like she'll just go into his bedroom and stay the night with him. And if I was to go to Grayson and say, Grayson, there's been a terrible accident. There was a very cruel man and he took your sister and he did terrible things and he killed her. And I have been given now the right and authority to punish that man as I see fit and to punish him until I am done and satisfied with punishing him. Now, Grayson... We could redeem him. But what it's going to mean is that you have to decide to take the punishment that he deserves in full. And Grayson would say, yes, Dad, I I want to do it for the man that took my sister. And then I have to say, all right, and I am going to be fully satisfied in destroying you like I would of him. Oh, and then Grayson, if we do this, he gets your sister's room. He gets your sister's chair. He becomes a part of our family. And we will love him. See, when I put it in those terms, I go, there's no way I could do that. There's no way I could punish my precious son for the sake of somebody that's just a dirtbag. And I go, ah, the gospel. The cross. Here they are, mocking yelling, aha, got you, blasphemy, beating, spitting, hating. And Jesus does this. So the father crashes down on his beloved son. And we see that Jesus finally explodes in exasperation. At the ninth hour, he cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lima, Sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, this is finally the totality. This is the zenith of all of it. Crushed under wrath, suffering for sin. Finally says, God, you've abandoned me. You've abandoned me. And as this happens, notice what the bystanders begin to say. Behold, he's calling for Elijah. This isn't pity. This isn't sadness. It's mockery again. 
It says, and some ran and they filled a sponge with sour wine and they put it on a reed to give it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Understand, when they put it on a stick and they give it to him, it's not because of height, it's because he's unclean, he's cursed, he's nasty, nobody wants to touch him. He's not really high, he's actually about eye level. They just don't want to touch the dirty guy. And they want to give him this, this, this concoction now, this new concoction, because it's a stimulant. It'll keep him alive longer. We get to watch what happens next. Let's see if Elijah comes. Let's see if he's rescued. That's your scene. It says, but then, Jesus uttered a loud cry. In the Jewish tradition, there are ten names for prayer. The first name, cry. Cry. Cry out, I need you. Cry out, I'm alone. I'm finished. I'm broken. I'm undone. I'm desperate. The cry. Well, here it is finished, and so here Jesus can cry. And with that, says he breathed his last. This is definitive. This is where finally his will to, to, to keep going is allowed to be done. And he goes. And as he goes, it says the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is a divine thing. It wasn't some dude at the bottom tearing it. It was God at the top removing it. Go back. Think about the biblical story. At Sinai, God corned it off so nobody could enter into his presence. At the temple, God curtained it off so no one can enter into his presence. But now through the cross, he tears it open and he says, everybody can come. Everybody's welcome. Everybody can approach the throne with boldness. Why? Because he took the weight. He took it. It's finished. No suffering. No exclusion. No ins and outs. Your ins through Christ. That's it. Glorious. Powerful. Conclusive. And I would add, radical. Radical because I want you to notice here's the scene. My God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out. Breathes his last dies, veil rips open in the temple, and the very first person, the very first person to ever confess Christ after the cross is the most unlikely character. Verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that this was the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Think about this guy. Just a few hours earlier, they all gathered together. They were mocking him, beating him, spitting on him. They dressed him in a robe. They slapped a crown of thorns on him. They beat him up with a reed. They gambled for his clothes. And now, everything has changed. His death was just as extraordinary as his life. And this centurion, that would have been battle-hardened, cruel, uncaring, sees that this man died different. And he says, that is truly the Son of God. The Gospel takes anyone. Anyone. 
The gospel forgives anyone. The person commissioned to killing Jesus is the first to confess him and enter at the foot of the cross. If it's good enough for the murderer of Jesus, it's good enough for anybody else. Well, as the story goes on, it says, and when it was evening, or evening was coming, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. How strange. It's not family. It's not friends. It's not open followers that come to retrieve the body of Jesus from the cross. It's this man, a man who was a member of the council that condemned him. The gospel receives any. All who bow their knee to Christ and His grace are freed because He took their sin. The very centurion that that crucified Jesus, Jesus was carrying that man's baggage on the cross. The very member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, that goes to retrieve the body of Christ, Jesus had his baggage on the cross. I mean, th- this, is, this is profound. So it's great. Lives that were wrecked, rebellious, sinful, can be changed. Well, it says Pilate was surprised to hear that he died so quickly. And he summoned the centurion, the one that just said, hey, this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he asked him, was he already dead? And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. That is to say, he was legitimately dead. And so verse 46, it says, Joseph brought a linen shroud. So just a simple white bit of cloth. And it says, he goes to the cross and he begins to take down the king. And so... He removes the King and Christ that we know. And it says He lays Him in this this cloth. But one of the fascinating things about the Bible is that it says, we were with Him on the cross. And it equally says, we were buried with him. And so as Joseph takes him down and prepares him for burial, what it means is that we were buried too. All of our guilt, all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our mistakes, all of our regrets, all of it crucified. All of it, totally forgiven, dead, buried, gone in him. He wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb, cut out of the rock, just like us. We were laid with him, dead, buried, the old us, gone. Because of what Christ did for us. That's what this is about that he who knew no sin became sin for us.
that we might receive the righteousness of Christ and God in His work. And so tonight, maybe most of us know Jesus, we follow Jesus. Some of us, maybe we haven't made that step, taken that initiative to say, I I need to follow this Jesus. I want to be forgiven by this Jesus. I want my sin to be dealt with by this Jesus where it is crucified in Him and buried with Him. So I am free. I am free. See, that is what He offers in His good news. And anybody can come. If the guy that killed Him could come and the guy that condemned Him could come, anybody, anybody can come. Anybody can be set free. And while it's Friday, and it's bleak and he's crucified and dead. Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming that wraps it all together and reminds us that we too will be risen and are risen in Christ and his glory.